Hi, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Cameron Kramnik, a VC turned entrepreneur who co-founded and then catalyzed businesses that generated over $300 million in annual revenue while creating thousands of jobs on two continents. Today, we're going to talk about developing a billion-dollar idea. But before we get into that, Cameron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Oleg. It's my pleasure. Uh, so how about to get started? You just tell us a little bit about yourself. My um, life experience as both an investor and operator spans the whole gamut of the startup world. I've been on the internet since before the web existed. I was fortunate to grow up in Silicon Valley in a family where you know, we had venture capitalists at the dining room table once a week or so and had entrepreneurs in. And it just it was sort of the whole milieu that I grew up in was, was of innovation and people having really crazy, wild ideas, some of which have worked out. And I've had a career where I worked for a pioneering venture capital firm called InterAsia Venture Management based out of Hong Kong, spent uh, almost a decade in Asia building um, some really phenomenal businesses, some of which were technology enabled, some of which weren't. The firm got its start bringing McDonald's to China and then built an entire economy around McDonald's. So at first it was hamburgers and that was in the seventies. By the time I was there, the two thousands, we were talking about enterprise software and FinTech and uh, social media. And so I had that experience as an investor, and then I also have a decade experience where I've built a series of different businesses, largely with people that I got to know while working in Asia, but also based here in the Bay Area. And so I have sort of a, a unique perspective of seeing the world both as a limited partner, venture capital investor, and as an entrepreneur. And this sort of three different perspectives mean that I see different patterns other people do. And that's why we're talking. Awesome. Well, thanks for the intro. I guess my first question is like, what's the difference between just a good idea and a billion dollar idea? Well, served available market, I'd say would be the, uh, the shorthand answer. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Sure. It's served available market and execution. What drives me crazy is that I see all of these business plans, me entrepreneurs who have brilliant ideas that solve real tangible problems, but they're too small. For example, about 10 years ago, everybody loved this company that made a scooter called the Segway. And you look at it and a lot of what ended up being successful in e-bikes was in a Segway, but because of both the pricing and design decisions, it ended up serving a much smaller market than it could have otherwise served. And, and so to have a, an idea that is a billion dollar idea that can generate that kind of revenue or that kind of exit you need to solve a large enough problem so that the global economy can support it. You know, the math is basically number of customers, how much they're willing to pay, and then how many markets are there that number of customers. So, you know, if you're a pizza place in San Francisco, say there are a million people that live in San Francisco, but only 10% of whom actually want to have pizza today. So you're not talking about a million people, you're talking about 100,000. And of that 100,000 people, you're not talking about just the people who want to eat pizza today, but the people who want pizza right now. And, and so all of a sudden you go from a city that has a million people to a pizza place in on Chestnut Street 
which might only have a, a certain available market of 10,000 people. And it turns out that there are lots of pizza places in Chestnut Street that have a good business. So that's a good business, but that's not a billion dollar business. So next I want to ask, now that we've sort of come up with a, a, a billion dollar idea, you think it's big enough and you're starting to look at the marketplace, how do you evaluate like what your customers are and their needs as well as who your vendors are going to be within that marketplace? Um, the most important part in being an entrepreneur is having empathy for your stakeholders. And stakeholders is a political word. I prefer to use the word customer. But for any one idea, there are several different types of customers. You have economic customers. They're the people that pay for it. You have technical customers. They are the people who allow something to be used. You also have end-use customers who, who use it. So, for example, if I'm on a business trip and I'm taking an Uber, the economic customer is actually my employer. The technical customer might well be the um, you know different regulatory bodies that allow Uber to work. And I'm the end customer because I'm choosing to use the black app instead of the pink one. So once you understand the marketplace, I, I know that it's important to not just have a hypothesis, but develop your hypothesis. What are the core components of an opportunity hypothesis? Sure. Basically, you want to, and again, this idea is largely from a guy named Eric Reese. Um, you want to put together a problem, then... Based on these one to three pretty high-level problem points, you want to sketch a solution to the problem. You want to look at existing alternatives, which is how problems are solved today. Then you get to an exciting metric, which you look at the problem, you look at the solution, and here's something really cool. Then you want to look at cost structure. And one of the real secrets to business, which people don't think about, are fixed and variable costs. One of the issues that a company like Uber has is that there's a real cost to move a human being afoot, and that, that's a variable cost. Whereas um, if you look at a totally software-driven business, um, you have the fixed costs of making the software, but then you can infinitely replicate it for free. Then you want to look at the unfair advantage, which gives a business a sustainable competitive advantage, the sales channels, customers you're talking about earlier. And then uh, ideally early adopters. And when I'm defining a opportunity, I'll just, I'll go to Facebook or I'll go to LinkedIn and I'll look at pictures of people who I think, who I, I know in my life, who might be a good customer for this. And then as part of the discovery process, I'll actually reach out to these people and be like, hey, I think this might be a problem you have. Would you find this solution appealing? Got it. Once you've figured out the problem and the solution, what's kind of the next step? So business, from my perspective, is all about testing, measuring, reacting, testing, measuring, reacting, etc. And so um, once someone puts together a hypothesis, they should test. And the best way to test it is to use zero technology. When my favorite exercise is uh, it's called the $100 exercise. So I'll tell a customer, hey, do you have these problems? And if the person doesn't have those problems and wasting their time, they're wasting mine and a call. But I'll talk to someone who's a potential customer to find the problems. And then I'll say, hey, I'm looking at building a product and I have a budget to build a product of $100. And of the $100, where should I allocate my spending? And so for a pizza place, is it real estate? Is it labor? Is it ingredients? For a software product, it could be design or having it be a multiple platforms or having the product be built to be multilingual from beta onwards. 
I, th I think that's a great example of the pizza parlor. And this idea of building out your opportunity hypothesis is something you actually sent over. You shared a, a table or a slide or a template that explains explicitly how to do this. So I think it would be valuable to go over that really quickly. And so we went over the, the first two parts. You have a problem. You should, if you're, if you're going to come up with an idea, you should understand what the problem is. So pose one to three problems. You should understand how those problems are being solved today. Those are your existing alternatives. And then you should look at your solution, sketching out how you're going to solve this problem. And then underneath you have uh, the exciting metric uh, portion. Why, why is that important? Well, all of us in the venture capital world, we tend to be a little ADD. And so without having some headline thing that grabs our attention and gets us exciting, there'll be something else in our shiny rectangles that we're going to pay attention to. Right. And then I imagine after the metric has has hooked you and brought you in, then you have to understand the value proposition. So here it says, have a clear and crisp value proposition. How do you go about building that once you understand the problem and the solution? That's a really good question. That's something where it's a little different in each business and in each environment. One of the businesses that I put together is a supermarket chain in Alaska. This year we're on track to do, gee, last year was over 250, but this year will probably be about 350, $400 million of revenue. Got over a thousand employees. And there I, I knew the first day when, when everything was working, we were in a town called Kenai. We were opening a $7 million store. And the mayor came up to me. And this is a company that was really trying to do a new retail format. The mayor came up to me and said, I, I heard you're the guy who figured out how to make this business happen. And I said, well, that, that's really a team. It wasn't really just me, but I figured out how to finance it. And she said, well, I'm mayor of Kenai. And ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to buy socks. And she had to drive in. And I don't know if you've ever been to Alaska, but it's a great state, but it's pretty remote. And in her case, she had to drive three hours to go to a store where she could buy socks. And having this one store in town where she could buy everything from socks to flat screens just changed the life of everybody in that town. And talk about dedicated, happy, joyful customers. That's a pretty exciting metric. You look at other businesses and they're different things. And sometimes it's qualitative, sometimes it's quantitative. And with a lot of these two-sided marketplaces, there's a magical 30% number that seems to be the cut that people get. And so... I always look for that 30% number. Can you explain the 30% a little more? You look at the app store and Apple takes about a 30% cut of each dollar sold. So you pay 99 cents for an app and Apple gets 33 cents. And you look at Uber and I haven't looked at the most recent quarterly numbers, but historically Uber's cut on a fully loaded basis was about 30%. Now, I don't know what's magical about that number, but it's something that's just a pattern that I see in business after business after business. In the supermarket business, the gross margins, so you've net gross, it's a 2% net margin business, but historically it's about a 27% gross margin business. So you see that same roughly 30% number in that business as well. And that's interesting that value can be, you mentioned qualitative and quantitative. And when you're building this hypothesis, you might not even know yet what some of the value might be. You might understand the quantitative, but not the qualitative yet. I think that's fascinating. But as, as you're building that opportunity hypothesis, next you, you want to understand your advantages. So 
define a sustainable competitive advantage. How do you know once you've found that? It's uh, a little bit like pornography. It's hard to define, but once everybody knows what it is. And if you want a real world example of a sustainable competitive advantage, go to a Sam's Club store and go to a Costco. Sam's Club is run by Walmart. Walmart's controversial, but those folks are smart and they're great at execution and built an amazing business because a lot of people, they meet a lot of needs for a lot of people. And they've spent 30 years trying to build something that's like Costco. And Costco has a couple of pieces of magic pixie dust that I don't think Sam's Club will ever be able to copy. And that's why when you look across the board, Costco stores do something like twice the revenue on average of a Sam's Club because of the unique culture and way that the company's run. Next, we have like sales channels. I guess how early, the interesting question would be how early should you understand what your sales channels might be and, and how, how soon should you plan out your, your path to the customer? I'm pretty old fashioned. And I, I think that before people start building things, they should figure out how they're going to sell it. In Silicon Valley, a lot of entrepreneurs have this field of dreams mentality where they think that I know how to make a cake. And so I'm going to make a cake and then people are going to buy cake. And that's great if you're Mrs. Fields and maybe it works out and you get lucky. But if you're actually trying to be an adult about this and build a great business, figuring out what you want your sales channel to be and choosing, explicitly choosing a sales channel is so critical in building a great business and letting the customers choose how they get sold to is from my perspective, illogical and kind of runs against, it's like trying to hold back the ocean. It's a lot less likely to be successful. It's a lot easier to surf. So on the topic of customers, can you explain what the difference here is between like a technical, economic and end use customer? I think you might've touched on it a little bit earlier, but just one more time reiterating, it would be nice. Sure. Let's see. I'll use kids and candy as an example. Everybody knows that kids like candy and the technical customer is a doctor who tells a parent, you know, kids shouldn't have just candy. Kids should also have some broccoli. The economic customer is the parent that pays for the candy. And the end use customer is the child that wants the candy and consumes it. And when you look at any business, you tend to see technical, economic, and end use customers. You know, if it's a webcam, technical customer could well be the CTO or the CFO of the organization is choosing between Logitech or Microsoft or some other brand. The economic customer is the person who's paying for it. And, and sometimes these things are the same thing. For a lot of technology purchases outside of Silicon Valley, it's actually really surprising. Oftentimes the CFO makes the technology choices and not someone who has any understanding of how the stuff works or is built. And then you have the end use customer and that's the person who has to use it. And sometimes they're all the same, but sometimes they're not. And What's really interesting from my perspective is that each of these three different types of customer have their own reference frame and their own ways that they're measured and managed. And so something that is really obvious from an end use perspective, like a webcam that has 4K resolution might not make any sense from a technical perspective because that would swamp the network. And the end use customer might not have any empathy for the technical customer and vice versa. Could you explain how the, exactly how the, the dentist was the technical customer? Sure. So the dentist or, or doctor, or whatever, basically is the person who is telling the parents that if your child only eats candy canes, their teeth will fall out. Do you want your child's teeth to fall out? Oh, and the, and the dentist is going to make revenue for every candy cane that the kids eat. Perhaps. It's 
with business, there's some things that you can measure and some things that you probably shouldn't or can't. And you could sit back and think, well, gee, if the average child eats an extra 10 candy canes per day, and I'm going to generate Y dollars of revenue from each filling that I do, then as a dentist, I make half a cent per candy cane of marginal revenue. Yeah, maybe you can do that, but I'd argue that that's probably the type of math a dentist shouldn't do. So once you've sketched out your hypothesis, what's the next step for a founder? Big part of this whole entrepreneurial journey and being a a founder or an entrepreneur is a lot like being an artist in Mm. terms of figuring out what one's work is, what one's art is, and how to make everything come together. And so thinking about what the team looks like and what the internal fit is. Whenever I look at a pitch deck, the first thing I always look at is how's the team who are they and how do they come together? And sometimes it's that they all went to Cal State Hayward and were fraternity brothers or lived in dorm together. Other times is they all went to the same church or they all went to Burning Man and they're part of that camp that figured out how to do a self-driving art car. And so looking at internal fit is critical. And then looking at the external fit, which is, you know, you have this team, you have this idea, what does the macro environment look like and um, how will that work for industry rivalry and uh, allowing sustainable competitive advantage? Let's talk about common frameworks and methods for assessing your ideas. How do you go about figuring out whether your idea is going to be attractive economically? First off, you have to look at the market size, which is total available market, search available market, and target market. And then there's a lot of just testing, testing, testing. It's so cheap to buy a domain name, throw up a WordPress and spend a couple hundred bucks in AdWords and see what the numbers look like. And we live in this world where there are all of these mass manufactured machines which generate human attention and they're pretty cheap to access. So throw up a landing page, buy some AdWords and A, make sure you're using the right AdWords. And I found actually that AdWords isn't the best tool. The best place is Reddit. Reddit's where people go to nerd out about stuff and everybody nerds out about something. And so doing a sponsored post on Reddit for an idea, if the people that nerd out about credit card churning have a Reddit group, and they do, and you have a credit card management product, and those people don't click through on that link, well, you're probably not onto something. But you go and you do a sponsored post in that same Reddit group for a product, and you know you have 5 or 10% click-through rate. That's huge. And you know, then you collect information about those people and talk to them. And once you have people who are excited about this product, want to use it, want to pay for it. And that's, that's how you build a great business. That's actually a really interesting way to like get to your early adopters. Yeah. Cause I know I use Reddit for certain things and it's kind of the things I love the most. It's like, I live on those communities. So that, that's a valuable tidbit. What are some of the risks that founders should consider as they're building out their idea? Everybody's seen the social network and have this kid who's in a dorm room. He gets drunk, throws up a bunch of code and all of a sudden he's a billionaire. And it just doesn't work that way. Even for Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think it worked that way. I haven't asked him personally, but my sense is he probably put more work into it than that. There, the risks are manyfold. Um, one of the things that people don't talk about in Silicon Valley is mental health. And there's people build entrepreneurial projects and try to do things that are new. It's really hard and it can be the most amazing affirming, positive experience, and it can also be really lonely. And so I think that for me, I'm very fortunate to both have been lucky 
more times than I deserve. So I've been lucky, but more than that, I have a partner, a, a wife who really loves me and supports me and, and helps take care of that type of risk. Your question probably is not about the human type of risk, but the other risks. And as an entrepreneur, there's adoption, regulation, and exit. And the kind of, they go one after another, it's really hard to get people to try something new and love it. Once they do, the government wants to regulate it and make sure that things are being done on the up and up. And then one thing that people really don't think enough about in Silicon Valley is exit. I've built this great business, now who will buy it? And at one point, Yahoo bought everything. I think Yahoo even bought Flickr. And the problem is Yahoo's not buying companies anymore. And so is it going to be Google or Facebook or... Tencent or someone else down the road, who knows, or will there be an IPO? Will there be an IPO market? I mean, you look at venture capital funds and so much of fund performance is driven by the year the fund was raised. And if, for example, when I worked in Asia, there was a, a bad year, a bad couple of years. And there was this apocryphal tale of the venture capitalists who really liked beer. And they put their entire fund into buying beer and they went to an island in the South China Sea, and they spent five years. And after five years, they had no more beer left, but they had all the cans. They returned the cans to the uh, supermarket and got their deposits back. And those people were the top performing venture capital fund of their fund year. And so if you look at circa 2000 Asian venture capital funds, the numbers would unfortunately bear out with that example. And so exit risk is huge. Wow, sounds like a good time drinking all that beer and, and making some money back. Well, thanks for the answer. I, I appreciate the, the very human answer before getting to the more VC-driven one. We appreciate that on this show. Next, let's talk about internal resources. How should founders think about their internal resources and what's required to take your idea and turn it into a business? The model, and, and this is all sort of basic MBA stuff, but there's value, rarity, immutability, and organization. And value is how people perceive the something the team does, rarity is how many of it exists. With something like Bitcoin that's great is that there's a fixed number of Bitcoin and there'll never be more. And that rareness and increasing rareness over time creates sort of this intrinsic value. Immutability is how easy is it for someone else to copy it? You have Bitcoin and it's getting rare, but then someone invents Ethereum and all of a sudden there's something else that doesn't have a lot of the problems that Bitcoin has and is able to imitate it, but also doesn't have the scale. And then you have an organization, which is who's the team, how do they function, who's the extrovert. There are some teams where you have just genius product people, but no one knows how to sell. And then you have other teams where you have these incredible rock star salespeople. You know, they could sell uh, ice cream to folks living in Nome, but they don't know how to make this stuff. And so having organization that works is critical. And then how do founders address external factors like the competitive environment? In terms of external factors, I actually think it's better for, for founders to look at the external environment, but it, it's more something that as an investor I look at. And there's a guy named Michael Porter who invented this model, and it's the five forces model, which is industry rivalry is driven by new entrant threat, buyer power, substitute threat, and supplier power. And you look at the soft drink business, and it was totally changed by new entrant, which is Red Bull. You look at the taxi cab business, and it was changed by new entrant, which was Uber. You look at the uh, coffee business and people decided that they didn't want to have to be condescended to when getting their morning pickup and Starbucks became a great business and that's buyer power. Mm -hmm. And so you have all these different five forces. 
Yeah, there's some interesting examples. Let's keep on with the theme of examples. Let's let's sketch out the opportunity hypotheses using some real life examples. We spoke earlier and said we would start with a Airbnb. So can you give us an overview of the opportunity hypothesis of Airbnb? The problem that they solve is that low end overnight options are mediocre and high end rental property is really hard to find. The solution was a marketplace for overnight rooms. The existing alternatives when Airbnb started were youth hostels, couch surfing, and I actually know a bunch of people that worked at couch surfing, great people. They were so close and just making a post on Facebook. The exciting metric is $700 billion a year is spent on hotel rooms. It's a huge potential market. The value is that connecting guests with hosts expands the market. And this is really critical. There are almost no variable costs. So, you know, you have the cost per additional customer to run their credit cards and stuff. But from Airbnb's perspective, it's super scalable because they don't have to actually build new homes or new bedrooms or whatever. The unfair advantage is once at critical mass, it was really impossible to disrupt. You know, if place where you go to rent out home at Tahoe is Airbnb, or would you go to some other website? And they, other websites that compare to Airbnb just don't have the velocity of listings. Sales channels are events, the social graph and search engine marketing, customers, economic guests, end use or guests and hosts, and the technical customers are cities. The early adopters, and again, this is Airbnb back in the day, where Yum hit flexible and fun. Cost structure is fixed cost largely technical. The variable costs are largely supporting credit companies, so there aren't a lot of variable costs. The revenue stream is booking fee plus commission plus posting fee. And so that's a beautiful business. And so Airbnb, they, they have competitors. What made them successful versus their competitors? When you look at Silicon Valley, every enterprise has a core logic. And Airbnb is a truly design-driven organization. And the friction that people have, both as hosts and guests, and the many different ways that edges were kerned and colors were chosen and serif versus sans serif fonts were used, really created a super easy, trustworthy, simple platform. And the other other platforms just didn't do that. And, you know, you just, if you want to look at Airbnb and Travelocity, you know, just, you just go to airbnb.com, travelocity.com, and it's clear that Airbnb has a good designers. I've read that Airbnb was less impacted by COVID than the hotel industry overall, and they actually just filed for an IPO. The businesses seem similar. Why were they... Why were they less impacted? Goes back to cost structure. So when Airbnb doesn't have to own golf courses, they don't own homes, they don't have all these fixed, heavy, expensive assets, which if they're not occupied, have a cost to them and become huge, huge stones to carry um, if they're not generating revenue. So if you're Marriott, you have housekeepers, you have pipes that need to be fixed, you have internet bills. Now, all those things Airbnb just doesn't have. So in an environment where there's a demand shock, and, you know, when you look at COVID, it's in some industries, it's a splice shock, but in all industries, it's a demand shock. And for some things like you can't buy a good webcam these days because they're, they're a hot commodity. And for other things, it's real hard to sell Caribbean cruise. So the, the demand shock goes both ways. And because of Airbnb's flexible cost structure, they're just so much more resilient than a traditional hotel chain. All right, next let's talk about Uber. What are the core elements of their hypothesis? Basically, 
I don't know how old you are, but taxi cabs were gross. I remember finishing business school, living in San Francisco's dog patch neighborhood. And my girlfriend, now wife, and I were going to do a celebratory trip to Peru. And we almost missed our plane because we couldn't get a taxi to pick us up. And the, the irony is that, like, I could have biked to the airport faster than it took for us to get a cab. So taxi cabs are gross, hard to find, and expensive. And the existing alternatives were pretty bad. It was driving, but what do you do with a car when you're done getting from point A to point B? Public transit, which is something that everybody should value more, but there are lots of issues with public transit, especially in terms of sanitation and proximity in our COVID times. Um, we're walking it, and so it's just a phenomenally better solution. Exciting metric is gasoline alone was $600 billion a year. The value is connecting passengers with drivers, expands the market, and has almost no variable costs. And that, that's not to the driver, but that's to the platform manager. So when you think about your last question where you're asking about Airbnb, they have this, like all their hotels have this huge drop in demand, but because their costs are so basically born by hosts instead of Airbnb, that didn't hit them financially as much as it would have traditional, a traditional asset-heavy hotel chain. And with Uber, it's actually quite similar where they don't own the cars. They don't have the employees for the time being. Who knows how the politics work there? But that meant that they had no variable costs. And so they've performed better than they than you would have think than, than tax cap companies have. And I've actually, the most recent numbers I saw of Uber, the international numbers were just phenomenal. And then how would you assess their idea? So what do you think the key factor of Uber's success is? The transportation industry is huge and complicated and regulated. And there are too many car guys. I have this great mechanic. I love him. He's awesome. But he really loves BMWs and loves the way that a well-tuned BMW sounds. And that's great, but customers really don't care. So some people nerd out about cars. Most people, they want to do is they want to get to work. They want to get to the gym. They want to get their kids to school. And the people who put together Uber were smart enough to realize that what people wanted to do was to pay money in a pretty easy to understand, digestible way to get from where they were to where they wanted to go. And then they had this other insight, which is that the same people sometimes want to pay to have something get from someplace else to where those people are. And they don't want to pay an infinite amount of money for it, but there's a real value in that. And in markets where there's sufficient population density creates a huge amount of positivity for our world. Our third example today here is Costco. What are the core elements of their hypothesis? Their hypothesis, they realized that wholesalers couldn't profitably serve small businesses. And the wholesale business is real hard in that there's all these shapes and all these squares and you want to get the square in the circle hole or the circle in the square hole. And the wholesale business is a lot like that. And retail customers need to have the right merchandise at the right time at the right price. And customers don't really care how it got there. And the problem with wholesalers is doing all that using software is really hard. There's a company called McLean, which is now part of Berkshire Hathaway, which does it better than anybody else. But it's real hard for the wholesaler, given their sort of holistic God view of the economy, to have the right merchandise. And Costco, by allowing these small businesses to pick from the Costco shelves and do that work for them, basically, they didn't use these words at the time, but they crowdsourced the inventory allocation problem. And that's really what they did. 
Costco's stock is performing well during COVID. Why why is that while other retailers are getting destroyed? <laughs> well, first off, Costco is allowed to keep their stores open. A lot of retailers, Forever 21 might have a nice pair of jeans, but because they're not essential for months, they were shut down and ended up going bankrupt. Going bankrupt. They, they had other problems too, but a Costco was able to stay open and, and sell a lot more than just yogurt. The other part of it is, is that in a world where people want to have less exposure to a virus, going to one store where you can do one stock up shop for a month, as opposed to a smaller store where you might have to go to five stores and go once a week reduces risk. And so there are a bunch of different components to customer need, but fundamentally Costco does a great job at selling things that people want to buy. Okay. Well, thanks for breaking down those examples. As we close this out, my last question is going to be this. What are some of the lessons that founders should take away from all these companies that we've talked about? So Airbnb, Uber, and, and Costco. The most important lesson is the execution matters more than anything else. Costco, Airbnb, Uber, any company that ends up sort of becoming king of a sector, there are two or three or five or 10 other people who tried to do the same thing and didn't execute as well. In Costco's case, there was Pace and Source Club and BJ's, which I think is still around, and Sam's, of course. You know, with Uber, there was Lyft, but there was also Sidecar, and I think there was a company called Handle. And then there's, a, of course, the Chinese companies, Di uh, Ching, et cetera, et cetera. But there are always competitors, and having the best execution, I think, is what matters. And, and that's why having a team that is able to not just build something, but design it and sell it and have good customer experience is so critical because it's, it's really the execution that matters more than anything else. Thank you, Cameron. This was a valuable lesson for me. Before we go, what are some of the best ways for the listeners to reach you? Best way to reach me is probably through Twitter. My handle is at Kramlich. That's K-R-A-M-L-I-C-H. Also the same handle pretty much every other social network. My business is at odge.com, that's O-D-G-E.com, but Twitter's probably the best way to search me out. I also have a personal landing page at kramlick.com slash Cameron. All right. Well, thank you, Cameron. We're going to end it there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or review us. Thank you again for joining the show, and let's get you back on here soon. Sounds great. Thanks for the great questions. (laughs) 